once again, I was informed earlier this morning that today, this very day, is the 45th anniversary of the first worship service right here in this sanctuary. A couple of you were here for that. I guess it was Independence Day, 1976. Um, <clears throat> so, happy Independence Day to those here on this 45th anniversary, and happy Independence Day to those watching from your vacation destinations. I'm excited about family and sun and the grill later today and fireworks. Really enjoy being an American. But I do deeply believe this morning that the most important thing that will happen today is what we're doing here right now. Whether you share that feeling or whether you're kind of just counting down to get to the stuff you're really excited about today, you're here. And you tuned in, you showed up. God may just want to do something with that. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Junior high can be a really scary time. Some of you young people are right in the middle of it. I think some of us who aren't in it anymore forget how terrified we were. Like, remember watching the popular kids use their words to just tear somebody to pieces? And then remember the next day trying so hard to make sure those popular kids wouldn't find any reason to turn on you? That insecurity brings temptation, of course. Like, how far are you willing to go to make sure you stay in the good graces of the mean kids? You can just turn me down a little bit just to eliminate some of that echo. What lines are you willing to cross to make sure that you're protected from their wrath? Right? That's part of what fills junior high with so much anguish. But here's the thing. Fast forward a few years. Now you're a real adult with couple of kids, just bought your first house in the suburbs, only to find that the social scene among suburban moms and dads is actually junior high part two. You've got the cool moms and the not cool moms. You've got neighborhood text threads that you're included in and neighborhood text threads that you're excluded from. You've got status hierarchies in the neighborhood based on who vacations where, what preschool each family sends their kids to, what activities you put them in. So you find yourself wrestling with the same old temptations. How far am I willing to go to stay in the good graces of the it moms and dads in the neighborhood? What lines am I willing to cross to make sure my kid doesn't get excluded from the next neighborhood birthday party? The temptation to do wrong in order to secure protection from undesirable outcomes, that's a temptation for all of us across generational lines. But the author of our psalm today finds that the pull toward wrongdoing is diminished when he reflects on the protection offered by the Lord. Would you turn with me to Psalm 125 if you haven't already? Zach just read it a moment ago, but we're gonna camp out there and reflect on it. So if you'd turn there with me. As you're turning there, a reminder, that all these psalms that we're studying this summer are from the so-called Psalms of Ascent. They're called the Psalms of Ascent because they were sung while going up. 
up to Jerusalem for worship. And Jerusalem wasn't up because it was the absolute highest point, as we'll see today. It was up in the way that people in England always talk about going up to London, or so I'm told. Jerusalem is always up, not necessarily always in elevation, but rather in centrality to the nation. Just as you and I are in a lifelong journey upward toward the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits us, and that is, or at least deserves to be, the centerpiece of our existence. Now, today's particular psalm for the journey is one of many psalms, including the first one, Psalm 1, that feature a, a pretty black and white contrast between good and bad. Some stay on the straight path, that's good. Others depart from the path, that's bad. But why would anyone depart from God's path? Well, since at least junior high, many of us, most of us, have known at least one reason why it's tempting to depart from God's straight path, self-protection, right? The cool kids, the neighborhood moms with power, governmental rulers, whoever it is, when they show themselves to be mean, I got to do whatever it takes so that they don't get me. That's the particular challenge this psalmist seems to have in mind. Three sections to this psalm. First focuses on those who trust. The second focuses on those who use their power for wickedness. And the third focuses on the Lord himself. We're going to see first, we're going to find out that those who trust are immovable. Then that people who use their power for wickedness are temporary. And then the Lord is just. Let's explore each of those in more depth, starting with the first. That those who trust are immovable. Let me reread verses 1 and 2. Follow along with me. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Do you ever feel like living the Christian life is sort of like walking a tightrope? Uh, what I mean is like, like you're performing this extremely delicate balancing act trying to avoid all the dangers on your left and on your right. They, you're tiptoeing tentatively while you sweat about the increasing probability that you won't actually make it to the other side without falling. Anybody ever feel that way? As normal as it is to feel that way, verses 1 and 2 of this psalm are a reminder that the Christian life is objectively not a tightrope act. Here's how Eugene Peterson insightfully reflects on these first two verses. The emphasis of Psalm 125 is not on the precariousness of the Christian life, but on its solidity. Living as a Christian is not like walking a tightrope without a safety net high above a breathless crowd, many of whom would like nothing better than the morbid thrill of seeing you fall. It is sitting secure in a fortress. Sitting secure in a fortress. Where's he getting that? Look with me at the, at the word picture again in verses 1 and 2. You've got to understand a little topography in order to catch this. You've got Mount Zion, which is the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem is built. And Mount Zion is surrounded, actually, by a little bit bigger mountains all around that serve to make the city incredibly secure from outside threats. So if you look closely at the metaphor here, Mount Zion represents us, God's people. And the powerful mountains around Zion represent the Lord. You see that there? Those who trust in the Lord, they're like Mount Zion. 
as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Well, when walking with Jesus feels like, it feels to us more like walking a tightrope than like resting in a secure mountain fortress, it's worth our while, according to these verses, to do some work to identify what has warped our perception of reality. And we're all guilty, aren't we, of allowing our perception to be warped from time to time? Think about just this past week. How many of us could say that the words of verse 1 always felt true of us all week? I cannot be moved. Is that how you felt at every moment this week? I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it feels like the opposite is true. I'm, I'm constantly being moved. Uh, I'm up when circumstances are good, and then I'm down when circumstances turn. What's more movable than me? But just because the Christian life sometimes feels tenuous or fragile doesn't mean the Christian life actually is tenuous or fragile. Sorry, I'm quoting Eugene Peterson so much this week, but his treatment of these first two verses is gold. Here's what he says about when the truths of verses 1 and 2 clash with our feelings. Here's what he says. My feelings are important for many things. They are essential, valuable. They keep me aware of much that is true and real. But they tell me next to nothing about God or my relation to God. My security comes from who God is, not from how I feel. Discipleship, that's following Jesus, is a decision to live by what I know about God, not by what I feel about him or myself or my neighbors. And listen to this. The image that announces the dependable, unchanging, safe, secure existence of God's people comes from geology, not psychology. From geology, not psychology. It's the same point ancient theologian John Chrysostom makes when he says, and I'm paraphrasing, bring all your best weapons and try to overturn a mountain. Good luck. You're going to run out of weapons and energy before that mountain's moved off its spot. Even when life doesn't feel that way, friends, that's the truest picture of the Christian life. And that's the real security that we're called to get our feelings in line with. You say, well, how do I do that? How would I get my feelings in line with reality? Well, Remember a few weeks ago when we demonstrated praying a psalm? You read a line and pray what comes to mind. You read another line, just pray whatever comes to mind. If your walk with Jesus feels like a tightrope at the moment, maybe you decide that you're going to spend this week praying Psalm 125 over and over again until you start to subjectively experience the objective stability of your standing with God. Those who trust are immovable. Second, those who use their power for wickedness are temporary. That's verse 3. Those who use their power for wickedness are temporary. Look at that with me. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. We sometimes get reminders of just how temporary most positions of power really are. Think about when you got to high school and you realize that nobody's scared of that junior high bully anymore. Or when you got home from your first year of college and realized that the high school mean girl had lost all her influence. Or 
when he logged on Facebook at age 35 and saw how sad life had turned out for some of the people who had been on top of the world back in college. As time passes, we find ourselves with plenty of opportunities to say, why did I ever care so much about what that person thought? But back when they were in power, all these people, they seemed like they'd be so important forever, right? The use of the word scepter in this verse, verse 3, makes plain that the psalmist is specifically saying something here about the people on top, the people with power. Now, is he thinking of people with power within Israel or from outside God's people? Maybe, as some commentators insist, the scepter represents the influence of foreign rulers over Israel, but I'm not so sure. Those of us who are reading through the Bible together this year are just coming to the end of 2 Kings, and it's becoming very clear at this point that God's people had plenty of their own wicked rulers along the way who fit the description, the scepter of wickedness in the land allotted to the righteous. So I don't know. But whether these powerful people in verse 3 are coming from outside or from within God's people, it's a big problem when powerful people use their power for evil. Corrupt leaders do tend to corrupt those they rule. What verse 3 reminds us is that while God sometimes allows that corrupting influence temporarily, he won't allow it forever. He won't allow it forever. In other words, the story won't end with powerful people using their power for ill. There are probably many reasons for that. Probably many reasons why God won't indefinitely let people use their power for evil. But the one reason provided here in verse 3 is fascinating. Do you see what it was? Look with me. Why won't the scepter of wickedness rest on the land allotted to the righteous? Why? Because if it did, then the righteous might stretch out their hands to do evil. See that? Those on top use their power for evil, then even the righteous do evil. Those here who have been declared righteous because of our relationship with Christ. Are we in danger of going down that road? We need to be alert to the fact that there are at least two ways in which we might be tempted to go down that road that we're warned against in verse 3. On one hand, on one hand, there's a simple temptation to uh, give in, to conform, to adapt our standards to what those in power want our standards to be also that we can maintain our influence. Right? For example, when people now say, well, times have changed. So if we don't change with the times on such and such a doctrine, we're going to lose this whole generation. Right? Ever heard something like that? If we follow that short-sighted path, we might at best succeed in keeping a generation from leaving the church, but now we've kept them in a church that's indistinguishable from the world. And the generation after them, guess what they'll ask? Hey, why do we need church again if it's the same as my spin class? Good people giving in to the influence of evil. But there's a second way, actually, to go down the same road. This one's less obvious, I think. There's a danger that we would see the evil being committed by those in power and respond by doing a different evil to combat that evil. That's another way that the righteous sometimes stretch out their hands to do wrong, verse 3. 
this evil over here looks so awful to me, as it should, by the way, that I buy into the lie that I must stop that evil by any means necessary, even by evil means. Soon I find myself being rude and justifying others on my side who are also rude as long as they're fighting against that evil over there. I find myself hurling insults and justifying others on my side who also hurl insults as long as they're hurling insults at that evil over there. Maybe I even find myself breaking the law and justifying others on my side who break the law as long as they're fighting that evil over there. And all along, I truly, truly believe that I'm doing the right thing. How did I become so self-deceived? Because the scepter of wickedness, rightly, looked so terrible to me that I wrongly convinced myself that I had to do anything necessary to expel the scepter of wickedness, even if it meant sinning to get rid of it. Christian, verse 3 reminds us that we must never stretch out our hands to do wrong. Now, for sure, we will often have to choose between non-ideal options in many situations in our lives. We often have two or more choices. Neither is sinful, but we also don't feel all that great about either. That's life in a fallen world. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if we're ever faced with a choice that is truly a choice between two actual evils, we must not choose evil. Not either one. Not choosing evil, even the lesser of two evils, is how you become the righteous person in chapter 125, verse 3, stretching out your hands to do wrong instead of waiting for God to remove the scepter of wickedness from the land allotted to the righteous, just as he promised. Now, let me make one more clarification here because... Some of us have felt the temptation to elevate politics to such a place of importance in our mind and hearts that even as I'm talking about wicked rulers and lesser of two evils, you're trying to figure out what I might be saying about American politics, okay? That's not where I'm at, actually. The psalmist isn't engrossed with rulers of random nations. He's concerned with the scepter that is extended over the land of the righteous. In other words, he's not reflecting on who's in power in America. He's reflecting on those who have power over God's people. And who are God's people today? It's us, the church. So first and foremost, since the locus of God's people today is the church, a mind and a heart conformed to Christ will start wrestling with this text in the context of the church. And I'll tell you, I need this challenge personally because I feel anxious I'll confess to you, I feel anxious when I see famous pastors with significant power and influence releasing books and videos and podcasts that are just off. It sends me into a panic sometimes for a moment, worrying that some of you will fall prey to their influence. This verse, verse 3, is a reminder to me. I can neither go down the road of mimicking their tricks to gain the influence that they have, nor... Can I become a jerk to try to repel their influence and do evil in response to evil? Friends, God will not allow evil people to use their power for evil forever. So we never have to commit one evil to fight another evil. Isn't that a relief? All of this is ultimately because 
The Lord is just. That's the final two verses. The Lord is just. Look at that with me. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Turn me down just a little bit more if you can. So one of my least favorite plot devices in any show or movie is an unexpected betrayal. I don't know why, it just, it just bothers me so much. There are plenty of them in the Bible too. David, Jesus, Paul, they're all victims of defection. I hate those. It's like, it's, it's hard enough figuring out how to fight the battles we're already up against as God's people. Now, some of the people we were fighting alongside have joined the other team. But betrayals happen in the church. Defections happened in Israel. So at any given time in Israel's history, the nation is made up of mixed company, meaning there are some who truly belong to God and there are others who are opposed to God. Verses 4 and 5 acknowledge that dual reality as the psalmist offers a prayer on behalf of those who remain loyal and he offers a declaration about those who betray one after the other. You see that there? See how verse 4 is a mini prayer? Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. And then verse 5, if you notice, isn't just a declaration about crooked people generally, but rather about those who were walking the path with us only to later turn aside. See that in verse 5. Those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead us lead away with evildoers. So really we have three stories here, okay? Person A walks the straight path. She's called upright in verse 4. She walks the straight path. Person B never attempts to walk the straight path. She's called an evildoer, verse 5. And then person C starts on the straight path, but ultimately makes the settled decision to turn from the path. She's called the one who turns aside in verse 5. Three paths. The psalmist says the final destination of person C will be with person B, who is never attempting to walk the path in the first place. Is this harsh? Not sure it is. If you've read through the Psalms, you know this fits with a general theme that goes all the way back to Psalm 1, that God will confirm the choices that people make. That's what a just God does. If we choose good, He'll confirm us in the good we've chosen. But if we deliberately, finally, ultimately choose to leave the good path, a just God will confirm us in the alternate path of rejection that we've chosen. He's a God of justice, and his actions toward us flow out of his just character. So friends, some among us will defect. It's even likely that someone here this morning will turn from the path at some point along the way. And I'm not just talking about slipping up or having a bad day. We all have that. The turning aside to crooked ways in verse 5 is talking about a settled final decision to abandon faith in the one true God. And it breaks my heart to imagine that some here may one day do just that. Even so, the Lord will vindicate the faithful. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but even if you're parents turn away from the Lord, even if your mentors turn away, away from the Lord, even if one day you look me up and I turned away from the Lord, don't you leave him 
he will vindicate his own. He will not let those who trust in him be put to shame. And in vindicating us, he will vindicate his own character, showing himself to be totally and perfectly just. And when a people, a people group, when they live under the rule of a just God, there's a word for what results. It's right there in verse 5, shalom, peace, wholeness, nothing missing, nothing broken. That's why the psalm ends the way it does after reflecting on God's justice. Shalom be upon Israel. One commentator suggests that it wouldn't be a terrible colloquial paraphrase to render this last sentence, relax. The just God is in control, and in the end, he's going to make sure everything shakes out just as it should. I don't know. Does that, does that allow anybody's mind and heart to just relax just a little bit this morning? Our big idea today is this. Instead of turning aside to wrongdoing, Let's trust the one who surrounds us with his protection. Instead of turning aside to wrongdoing out of self-protection, let's trust the one who surrounds us with his superior protection. Whether you're navigating junior high bullies or preschool parent politics or assisted living cliques, you know the temptation to turn aside to wrongdoing when those in power over you are not committed to the good. The good is defined by God. When those holding the scepter, so to speak, have the ability to use that scepter to hurt us, we all feel the temptation to do wrong in order to shield ourselves from undesirable outcomes. But let's close with a moment of meditation on the throne from which rulers have exercised power over God's people. That throne was passed down from generation to generation among the descendants of King David, some of whom used that scepter so to speak, for good, and many others who use that scepter for wickedness. But then one day, God made good on his promise that the scepter of wickedness would not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And he did so when he placed that scepter into the hands of the one who will possess it forever. His name's Jesus. And when he took his seat on David's throne as the rightful heir of all the promises made to David, and all the promises made to Israel, he assumed kingship over us, the church, as well. That's awesome news, friends, because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And get this, he invites us to be seated with him on that throne, even now in the heavenly places, Colossians 3. How did he come to possess that throne? Well, if you don't yet know Jesus, you need to hear this. It came at the greatest cost to himself. Before he ascended to the highest place and took his seat on that throne, he first stooped down to the lowest place, taking on finite human flesh, dying the death that we deserve to die. He did so standing in for us in order that you and I could join him on his throne forever if we'll cross over from death to life by placing our trust in him. Have you placed your trust in him? If you have, friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, remember, all that's left is for him to come back again and vindicate us. So don't rush to your own defense. Don't sin to prevent sin. Don't give in to the crowd. Don't choose the lesser of two evils. The Lord surrounds those who are truly his own and in the end will be vindicated. Let's pray.
Lord, if we had to take matters into our own hands, if we had to defend ourselves, if all the protection that we had was what we could muster up in our own strength, we'd be sunk. It'd be the end. Life would just feel like a constant walking of a tightrope, never knowing when we're going to fall. Lord, we praise and thank you that that is not our reality, even when it feels like it is. That we can cling to the rock-solid truth that we are surrounded by you. Like Mount Zion is surrounded by its protective mountains, that you hold us in your hand and that there we are firm and stable. Help that truth to sink in deep enough in our hearts that we don't feel like we need to run aside, turn aside or run away to our own self-protective measures. Let us rather trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.